Dear Father, as I've uh, asked among your people, please prepare my heart and for all those who hear this message, please prepare their hearts for something that not long ago seemed so natural and easy. And now, Father, may seem a bit scary, a bit risky. But Father, we trust you in all that comes in our lives. Though we do not know the future, you do. And whatever may come, Father, we trust you. We know, Father, that the glory that will follow our days here is nothing to be compared with the trials and the difficulties that we know. And so we are content to look forward and to hold on to this life loosely while we eagerly anticipate what you have waiting for us. Let that lead us to be better servants, more selfless, more active, Father, more courageous, more willing to do as you've called us to do. And Father, as, as we learn again this morning about what Jesus did for us, let it inspire us all the more as he faced his fears as a man, as he faced the challenges of the trials that you put him through for our sake, let him be our example, Father. For if he can go through what he did for us, is there anything we cannot do in service to him? I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's pick up again in our study of Matthew. And we're gonna go right back to where we left off last week. This is in Matthew's introduction of Jesus' betrayer, Judas. Last week he was at Simon's house along with Mary and Martha and Jesus and Lazarus. And you remember the scene, Mary was pouring out that vial of expensive perfume to anoint Jesus for burial. She was making this tremendous sacrifice uh, of what really amounted to a life savings in the form of that expensive perfume. And she was doing it in obedience to the Father's will because he wanted to honor Jesus in that moment. And I assume she was willing to obey the Spirit's leading in doing what she did because of the things she had experienced with Jesus in the months and years before this moment. If you know the stories from the Gospels of this woman, Mary, she's remembered for sitting at Jesus' feet uh, when she was in her sister's home, Martha. Martha was in the kitchen working, of course. Mary put that aside and sat with Jesus and heard his teaching, which tells us clearly Mary knew the significance of Jesus' ministry of teaching on earth. And then just a few days before this scene, in Simon's home, uh, Jesus comes to the city of Bethany where they lived, and he raises Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. And having seen that miracle, she obviously understood Jesus' power over death. And by raising her brother, Lazarus, Jesus also did something else for her and for her sister. It was a great blessing, in effect. It was a financial blessing. Because in that patriarchal culture, a woman who was left without a husband or a father or a brother in this case was very vulnerable, financially speaking, economically speaking. She was a candidate for poverty because of the way that society operated. So having Lazarus restored to her by Jesus gave her the opportunity to regain the benefit of her financial provider in that home. And so I would expect that left Mary very much appreciative of the fact that whatever wealth she had, Jesus was more than capable of providing for her through miraculous ways in one moment or another. In other words, you take all of those experiences that Mary had with Jesus, and you see a woman whose heart had been moved to faith and had left her in a position 
where when the time came and the Spirit moved in her, she was willing to give everything she had to Jesus. She must have recognized, you know, there are things in this life that are more important than my life savings. Namely, Jesus' presence in her life was more important. She knew she could trust Jesus uh, with whatever she had. She knew he could provide for her if she gave everything away. In other words, she wasn't worried about the things we tend to worry about when we think about making sacrifices. She was willing to make any sacrifice she needed to for Christ's purposes because she knew better things were coming and Jesus was in control. So in that moment, Mary does something quite remarkable and you and I see it now with an understanding that she was demonstrating great spiritual maturity in her actions. But as we remember from last week, there were others there, some of the disciples, who could not see what she did in that same way. And specifically, Judas Iscariot. Judas, you remember, he suggested Mary would have done a better thing if she had just sold all of that perfume, taken that money, and used it to help the poor. But John, in his record of that moment, gives us the insight to know that that suggestion was not as selfless as it seemed. In reality, Judas was a thief. He stole money from the money box that the disciples used to hold their donations. And in that way, we get the sense that he really was upset at losing access to that money, the the money that would have been in that box had Mary sold the perfume. Now, in that moment, as he makes that comment, Judas reveals himself to be an unbeliever in two ways. First, he imagined that we obtain God's favor by doing works of charity and piety. You know, good works, in other words, are the way to getting a relationship with God. And unbelievers generally don't understand that good works are filthy rags to God, according to the scriptures, and that therefore the only way that you please God is by accepting his sacrifice on your behalf, that is Jesus. And so naturally, as an unbeliever, Judas would favor selling that perfume and taking the money and giving it to the poor over a sacrifice made for the honor of Christ. And that's why Jesus responded to Judas in the way he did back in verse 11 of this chapter, saying, you'll always have the poor, but Mary will not always have Jesus in her presence. What he meant is this, if you felt moved in your heart to give to the needs of the poor, well, you're forever gonna have an opportunity to make that kind of sacrifice, if that's what you feel led to do. But Mary would not always have the opportunity to make this special sacrifice for Christ. It was now or never. And so Mary wisely prioritized the dedicating of her sacrifice to Jesus as opposed to some lesser concern in earthly terms. But Judas couldn't understand that, and that's the second way in which he reveals himself to be an unbeliever. He could only understand Jesus' ministry in earthly terms terms. Judas, as you remember, stole from the disciples' money box, as I just mentioned, and he did so because the whole reason he was following Jesus, the whole reason he had become a disciple in the first place, was for the prospect of earthly gain. That's my assumption about him because I know his heart. In the beginning, I think Judas was probably a little starstruck and He was feeling a little honored when Jesus extended the invitation to him that he would be one of Jesus' disciples. But I also believe 
that Judas expected that this opportunity might translate into some kind of financial opportunity down the road. Um, But sooner or later, it became apparent to Judas that Jesus was not into his fame and fortune and neither would his disciples be. And so at some point, he decided he would just make the best of this situation by helping himself to the money box from time to time. At least in that way, he must have figured he was gonna profit from his association with Jesus. I mean, after all, following an itinerant rabbi around the hillsides of the Galilee hadn't exactly turned into the greatest career move on his part. And so that's the attitude of unbelief demonstrated. The earthly things matter. The earthly gains are what this whole thing is about. And so Judas's reaction to Mary's sacrifice revealed that he had this heart of resentment, uh, a heart of greed, and all of these things are marks of unbelief. He lacked the ability to see beyond this world, much less the ability to prioritize spiritual concerns over earthly concerns. It would also explain why this man was willing to betray Jesus in the way that he does. His frustration over not gaining more from Jesus's earthly ministry had reached a tipping point and he was gonna take matters into his own hands. He was gonna find a way to profit from this association. That leads us back into the text in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. And from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Let's take a look at this man for a moment and what he does. On the next day, Wednesday, Judas leaves the rest of the disciples. And at some point, he goes to the chief priests in the city and he offers to betray Jesus for money. Now, the Greek word that's used there to say betray, it's literally in the Greek a word that means deliver or hand over. So what Judas said is, well, how much will you pay me if I hand over Jesus to you? Now, the first question we need to answer is why would the religious authorities be interested in paying anyone to betray Jesus? Why don't they just go get him themselves? Well, as we heard last week, the religious leaders were concerned about how the crowds might react in this bustling, packed city during Passover if they took custody of Jesus while all the crowds were around him. They feared a riot. They needed a way to seize Jesus outside the view of the crowds, and preferably that meant they needed to take him at night when most people would be sleeping and no one would really be paying much attention. But in this age, in a period of time in which you did not have instant communication, it would be nearly impossible to find someone like Jesus wandering the hillsides of Jerusalem at night. I mean, even if you paid someone to follow Jesus so that you know where he goes, by the time that person left Jesus, came back to you to report what he saw, and then you grabbed a bunch of Roman soldiers to go find what this person's reporting, in that ensuing time, Jesus would have wandered off somewhere else and you wouldn't know where he is. And the religious leaders need to be careful here. If they go to the Romans and secure a Roman cohort of soldiers, they're gonna have to do it on the basis of some kind of evidence or charge. If they grab that soldiers, those soldiers run off and then come back empty-handed, they'll look foolish. So they need insider information. They need someone who can tell them with assurance where Jesus will be at a given time so that they know if they go there, they will find him. And Judas is offering to be that informant for a price, and they agree to 30 pieces 
of silver. Now we know Judas had a greedy heart. He wouldn't have been stealing from the money box if he hadn't had one. And now you see there's another reason that he's acting against Jesus, but you don't see it here in Matthew's gospel. We have to go to Luke's gospel to find out what the real reason was that Judas chose to act in this way now. We find that in Luke chapter 22, verse two. Luke says, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put Jesus to death and they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the 12, and he went away and discussed with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray Jesus to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. I want you to notice, Judas initiates this transaction. The chief priests were certainly looking for some way in which they could capture Jesus, but they hadn't figured it out yet. And then, out of the blue, Judas walks in and gives them their answer. So Judas initiates this agreement, and now we understand the true motivation for why he does so. No less than Satan himself enters Judas, indwelling his physical body at this moment, propelling Judas toward this scheme to betray Jesus for money. Now, from a human perspective, Judas's betrayal was the result of greed and perhaps malice. But now you know there was actually a spiritual actor working behind the scenes with Judas's sin to propel him into action. Now, I'm not proposing that Judas was aware of Satan's activity or his presence. In fact, as a general rule, those people, wherever they are, that the enemy works through and in, in a fashion like this, are ignorant of how they're being used. But in their minds, they have their own reasons for acting in the way that they do, and certainly Judas would have as well. Judas was reasoning out why he did this, I'm sure, in some way, probably for monetary reasons, maybe as retribution, maybe in justification for all the time he spent wandering the hillside with Jesus. Whatever he was thinking to himself, his evil heart had led him to believe this was a proper course to betray his Lord. But behind the scenes, a much more powerful actor was actually pulling the strings. You know, Judas is an example of what Paul teaches in Ephesians. And when he tells us that the battles that we face in life are always more than they seem to be, on the surface. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So when we clash with the world, we need to recognize those conflicts are the consequence of a much larger battle taking place outside our view. You can't see Satan, not generally speaking, you can't see his demons, but you can see them working in the lives of unbelievers who might come against you from time to time. Every unbeliever is a potential pawn that the enemy can enlist into his army to oppose God and to oppose God's people. And they work by planting ideas in the hearts of unbelievers or by tempting unbelievers into action of one kind or another. And on occasion, they can even indwell the physical body of an unbeliever, pulling them forward into action. So from a human perspective, when an unbeliever opposes our faith, or when he or she hates us because we're preaching Jesus, or just loving Jesus, you and I see an enemy in the form of that individual. But Paul is telling us in scripture that we are actually observing the effect of an enemy working inside that person and through that person to oppose God. 
So when we deal with that enemy, so to speak, we need to recognize they are actually a victim. They are a victim of an even greater enemy, of a spiritual force, and therefore we should have pity on them recognizing the real battle that's taking place. By the way, the fact that Satan enters Judas here, according to Luke, that is our best proof that Judas was an unbeliever. Because we know from John 6 that Jesus calls Judas a devil and says he selected Judas to be among the 12 for that reason. By the way, when Jesus calls him a devil, he's calling Judas an agent of the enemy, which again means he is an unbeliever. The scriptures are clear that believers cannot be indwelled by Satan or his demons. Your God is a jealous God and he will not share you with anyone else. Your body is his temple and Satan has no place there. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I and others like us cannot be indwelled. And if that had been true for Judas, he neither could have been indwelled in this way. And the fact that he was is our proof that he did not know his Lord. So Jesus, according to John 6, intentionally selected an unbeliever to be among the 12 of his inner circle, and he did so precisely so that that man would be available to betray him on this day. You know, the fact that God chose Judas, that Jesus hand-selected his own enemy and put him in the position that he needed to be so that he could do the work of opposing Jesus, this is one of my favorite examples in the Bible of God's sovereignty. I mean, God controls everything on earth, and his control is so complete that he even picks his own enemies. He decides who his enemies will be. He chose the man that Satan will use in this scheme, and ultimately, that means God was the one directing Satan in this plan, That is, God made sure he knew who Satan would choose and that Satan even had someone available to choose. Truly, no one put Christ on the cross. Christ put himself there willingly to obey the Father in his plan of our redemption. And so Judas and his fellow conspirators now have an agreement. Judas has agreed to do what they've asked for, 30 pieces of silver. By the way, that price was not arbitrary. The religious leaders of Israel were sending a not-so-subtle message to Jesus by their choice of 30 pieces of silver because in the law, 30 pieces of silver was the price that you paid if your animal, some animal you had in your possession, if an animal killed another man's slave, then the price that you had to pay for compensating the other person was 30 pieces of silver. So in other words, they have assigned Jesus the same value as a dead slave, which was a a kind of show of contempt. It was an insult against Jesus. In fact, the prophet Zechariah tells us in chapter 11 that the Messiah would be betrayed for exactly that price. So this is a fulfillment of scripture as well. So Judas sells out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and to be more specific, Judas actually got bribed to do three specific things. First, he was to tell the Jewish authorities where they could find Jesus, because after all, that was the hard part. They didn't know where to find him, and all four of the Gospels record Judas fulfilling this part of the bargain. Secondly, we make some assumptions now. We have to assume that the Jewish authorities would have needed Judas's help to convince the Roman authorities to send soldiers 
to arrest Jesus. Look, Roman officials did not dispatch cohorts of Roman soldiers in the middle of the night simply because some Pharisee showed up on the doorstep of the procurator and said, hey, I need some soldiers. No, they would expect some evidence of a crime. They would look for some reason that necessitated this action, and that would have meant the Romans needed a witness, someone willing to make a charge or a accusation against Jesus, which then would lead to his arrest. So although the Gospels do not record this, we assume that Judas must have given a statement to the Romans in order to affect the dispatch of those Roman soldiers that arrest Jesus. And then thirdly, also an assumption, at the Roman trial of Jesus, Judas would likely have been expected to come forward and testify as a witness against him in keeping with the agreement he made. Uh, Here again, no record of this ever happening, and perhaps this never did happen because when we look at how the trial played out, it may have been the case that he never got the opportunity. Uh, Pontius Pilate never seems fully convinced that the charges against Jesus were accurate, though he convicts him anyway. So now, the stage is set for Judas' betrayal, but what remains now is for Judas to find an opportunity to betray Jesus, a moment that Jesus himself will also select. And to set the stage for that moment, Matthew now moves us back into the scene with Jesus and his disciples. Remember I said last week that the, the next couple of chapters of this gospel play a little bit like a movie in which we jump between different scenes. And so we're jumping back now to where Jesus is with his disciples. Matthew 26, verse 17. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is near. I am to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. The disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. All right, let's pause there. There's a bit of mystery there we need to clear up. And as we prepare to study the Last Supper, that's what we're now preparing to go into for the next several weeks, Uh, As we study this moment between Jesus and his disciples, we need to return to our timeline discussion for just a moment. Now, Matthew says that this scene takes place, notice, on the first day of unleavened bread. And that can be a confusing reference that we need to kind of work through here this morning. In the Jewish feast calendar, there are two feasts that come, one right after another, on this calendar in the springtime. The first feast of the year in the Jewish calendar is the feast of Passover, and Passover comes uh, on the 14th day of the Jewish month, the first Jewish month of Nisan, which is roughly April or May, uh, or March rather in April, March and April of our time frame today. It, It varies in our calendar because their calendar is based on a lunar year and so it moves around a little bit but somewhere in March or April of every year you get the 14th of Nisan. Now remember what we've studied before that the Jewish day starts at sundown. So the Jewish calendar flips from the 13th of Nisan to the 14th of Nisan at sundown as night arrives. That's when Passover starts. So the first half of Passover is a night. The second half of Passover is the daytime. Then the very next day, on the 15th of Nisan, starts a new feast, a seven-day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Once again, that feast starts on an evening, the first evening after the Passover day. And because this feast immediately follows after the Passover, you see on a Jewish calendar, you have one feast, then another feast, 
because they run together like that in the calendar, over time they came to be seen as a single feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now in reality, it was still two different feasts, one Passover, one unleavened bread, but as you can see in Matthew's gospel here, he says that they are now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but that's not actually where they are. They're on the day of Passover, but he's blending the two together. Let me show you the evidence of that in Mark's account of this same moment. Mark chapter 14, here's what Mark writes. Verse 12, he says, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You notice that? Same reference, right? Mark calls it the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but then he clarifies and he said, oh, but this is the day when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. That tells you it's Nisan 14. It's the first day of that eight-day period, the Feast of Passover. Now, That means it's Wednesday night after sundown, the start of the 14th. So let's go back to the calendar that I showed you last week. This is the week of Jesus' passion in the city of Jerusalem. We've now moved to Wednesday night after sundown, the start of the 14th, and it's on that day that the disciples asked Jesus, where are we going to eat the Passover? And their question gives us an opportunity to clarify Passover practices of that day. And in particular, two things that will become important for us as we begin to understand what's about to happen. First, the timing of the Passover sacrifice itself and of the meal that people shared together on that day. Now, on our timeline from last week's lesson, let's add a few things to this timeline that we have already studied. For example, Mary's anointing of Jesus, we know that happened on the Tuesday night when they went back to Bethany after he taught in the temple that day. And then sometime during the day on Wednesday, that's when Judas goes out, probably by himself. He stole away from everyone, goes to the priest, and he gets his 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. Now, from what we read in Mark, we have reached the day of the Passover lamb being sacrificed, which means we've now gone into Wednesday evening, and we are now getting ready for the Passover meal that happens on that first evening of the 14th, because in the law, The Lord, when he gave Israel this feast, he told them to celebrate it this way. From Exodus chapter 12, verse five, God says, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire. They shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. So here's what God just told Israel, summary. He said every family in Israel is to take an unblemished lamb inspect it for a few days to make sure it's truly spotless, and then on twilight of the 14th of Nisan, and in this week we're talking now about that Wednesday night, on Wednesday night after twilight, twilight by the way in Jewish reckoning refers to the moment that two stars are visible in the night sky. Once the second star becomes visible, you've officially started the new day, that's twilight. So after nightfall on the 14th, that first evening of Passover, the family kills the lamb in their own home, They roast it and they eat it in that same evening. In fact, nothing can be left until the morning. 
That is the meal that we commonly call Passover or a Seder meal. And the disciples now, after sundown on the 14th, they recognize we gotta eat something tonight, this is the Passover, and so they say, where do you want us to prepare your meal? Where are we going to do the Passover tonight? We know this Passover meal now as the Last Supper. And the Last Supper takes place then on the Wednesday night. Technically, that is the 14th of Nisan, the start of Passover. But it gets a little more complicated because by Jesus' day, the rabbis had concluded that that Passover lamb could no longer be killed in the private homes of all of the Jewish residents. Instead, they all had to be killed, all those lambs had to be killed in the temple under the supervision of the priests. And so that required that every family bring their lamb to the temple, their Passover lamb, and have it killed in the temple court on the day before Passover, the 13th of Nisan. On our calendar, we're talking about the daytime of Wednesday. And so on that Wednesday, people brought their animals into the court. The animal was killed in the court. The blood was drained into the bowls by priests who then sprinkled it on the altar. The animals were skinned and gutted and a portion would be cut away so that it could be burned as a burnt offering on the altar. The rest of the animal was given back to the family to take home that evening for their Passover meal. And all of this is done with great care that no bone in the body of the lamb would be broken according to the the law. So all of the family lambs that were sacrificed for the Passover celebration were sacrificed in the temple in the daytime of the 13th of Nisan. What you're learning is this, none of the Passover lambs were sacrificed on Passover. They were all sacrificed a day ahead of time because logistically the uh, the rabbis had required this in order to get it done in time so that by that evening when Passover began, everyone would have a lamb ready to eat. So they had a problem. There was no lamb being sacrificed on Passover. And so to ensure that at least one lamb was killed on the actual Passover day, the rabbis instituted a symbolic sacrificial lamb that represented the nation as a whole, that one lamb would be taken into the courts on 9 a.m. on the daytime of Passover and would be sacrificed symbolically. So if you will, in the same way that the United States has a national Christmas tree, even though we all have our own at home, similarly, they had a national Passover lamb who was being sacrificed on the Thursday morning in the case of this week, while all the families had their lambs sacrificed the day before and they ate them on, Thursday, on Wednesday night, the beginning of Passover. So one lamb sacrificed at 9 a.m. every Passover morning became the one Passover sacrifice for Israel. That lamb satisfied the requirement that there be a lamb satis- uh, sacrificed on the Passover and that is why that as Jesus goes to the cross on Thursday, he will serve as Israel's national Passover lamb. It's noteworthy, by the way, that Jesus' betrayal was purchased by the temple priests using money taken from the temple treasury. And it's ironic because treasury funds, the temple treasury, was traditionally where you went to get money to buy that national Passover lamb, that that symbolic lamb that was sacrificed at 9 a.m. on Passover every year, that lamb was purchased with money from the treasury. And so unknowingly, the priests just used temple funds to purchase the true national Passover lamb that year when they bought Jesus for 30 pieces 
of silver. So as Wednesday comes to an end, and everyone else during that day has been taking their lambs in and getting them sacrificed in the temple, preparing for their evening meal. The disciples have been with Jesus this whole time, and they're starting to wonder, what about us? What's our Passover plan? It'd be like sitting at home on Thanksgiving and no one thought to buy a turkey. Everyone's kind of wondering, what's the plan for today? Well, Jesus tells his men how they're going to have their meal. He says, I want you to go into the city, into Jerusalem. I want you to look for a certain man in the city, And if you go to Luke's gospel, we get a little more detail. Luke tells us that this certain man that they were told to look for would be known to them because they would notice he was carrying a pitcher of water. Now, you might listen to that and say, well, that kind of narrows it down. I mean, how are we going to find a guy in a city of two million people walking with a pitcher of water? Well, actually, it was a very clever sign because it would have been quite unusual in that day to see a man carrying a water pot because in that day, men did not do domestic chores. Well, I guess maybe it's not so different now, but in general back then, you would never have thought that a man would do that. Only women carried water. That was a very gender-specific role. And so to see a man doing this work was a very clever sign. It certainly would have caught their attention because they were looking for it, but it wouldn't necessarily have caused anybody else to notice. So We have a question here. Why is Jesus being so mysterious? Why all the cloak and dagger here? Uh, Why doesn't he just say, look, it's gonna be in such and such an address, just go there now? Well, remember, Matthew's already told us, Judas is on the lookout for an opportunity to betray Jesus. And what does that involve? It involves knowing where Jesus will be in advance so that he can alert the authorities where to find Jesus. And so if Jesus had been plain about the location of the Last Supper, that would have given Judas an opportunity to alert the authorities and they would have interrupted that meal, which Jesus did not want to have happen. And so Jesus gives instructions to his disciples about where they're going in such a way that they'll find the destination, but Judas couldn't possibly tell anyone in advance where it would be. Judas says to them, this man, when they find him, will lead them to a room prepared with a Passover meal waiting for Jesus and his men. I kind of like to think about this guy for a minute. I wonder what this man was thinking when he was at home earlier that day and he was preparing his own Passover table, probably in the lower level of this two-story home. And when the thought came to his mind, I think I should prepare an entirely separate table of additional food items for the Passover in my upper room for no one specifically in mind. I kind of wonder what was going on in his head right then. I mean, did he know who he was eventually going to have entertaining in that room later that night? I, I doubt it. I wonder what his wife was thinking. Did his wife think this man had gone crazy to set an entirely separate Passover table upstairs? Uh, What did he say to her when she told him, I want you to go get water? I bet that had been an interesting conversation. And and what did he think when strange men approached him on the, the street that day saying, our master has said you have prepared an extra table for us to enjoy the Passover at your house tonight? How many moments of faithful obedience did this man have to have in a row in order to be in a position to host the Messiah in his home that night? And as I thought about that question, the answer actually came to me a different way than I expected. The answer is he only had to do one thing. He just had to respond to the first leading of the Spirit to set that extra table. And I think everything else after that 
came easier. I mean, once you're in the mode of listening, you go with it. It's that first step of hearing and obeying that starts the process or stops it if you don't take action. I wonder about that conversation he had in his head because I do this. Maybe I'm the only one who does this. But you have these conversations in which the thought pops into your mind. You feel like you're supposed to do it, but it makes no sense. And so you begin to rationalize it in your head. You kind of wonder, do I really need a second Passover table? Is this really gonna make any sense? And you start to think, am I crazy? Am I foolish? And then you think, well, what will other people say when they see me doing this? Are they gonna think I'm crazy? What's my wife gonna say? Or what's my family gonna say? But in all of that, the Spirit of God made clear to him, this is what you need to do. And what he did next is something I call blind faith. Blind faith is accepting the leading of the Spirit without challenge, even though it makes no sense to you in the moment. It's the kind of faith that I think led Abraham to go to a place I will show you when God called him out of Ur. Or when God told him, take your son up to the mountain, your only son, the son whom you love, and sacrifice him. And Abraham did it. It's the kind of faith that led Moses to go back to Egypt where he knew he had enemies. Or David to run out into the field and think he can beat Goliath with a slingshot. I mean, these are moments of blind faith. Blind faith is simply trusting God's word in the way he's revealed it to you, before you have the answers. So you act on trust. And you know, it is a beautiful thing when you see someone do that. I mean, we're not all Abraham or Noah or David or whoever, but we have opportunities. We may not have Jesus over to our house for dinner. You know, we're not necessarily gonna do the same things we read in the scriptures, but I will tell you this, we all get the same opportunity to follow the Spirit's leading in blind faith. And from a small moment of obedience can come a great thing. And I believe the Spirit of God works like this all the time in the people of God. He puts opportunities before us all the time to live and act in blind faith, taking steps like the ones you're seeing here, something that doesn't make a lot of sense, but I'll do it anyway, Lord, because you asked me to. And I think in most cases, we are not given the details of how that obedience is ultimately gonna serve God's purpose. We don't know how we're serving him. We don't see the dots connected as we take that first step. And in fact, in many cases, we may never know this side of heaven, how our obedience in these moments of blind faith were put to work to the glory and honor of God and to the blessing of others. But you will know, one day, I often think that a lot of what we'll do in the time that we'll spend together in the kingdom is we will reminisce about all the connections God made through small steps of blind faith that we never saw here, and it will just amaze us at what God was at work doing through us. I mean, for example, have you ever felt that strange, inexplicable leading to send a check to someone that you don't know very well, or maybe someone you don't know at all, and you're not even sure why, but you you just feel compelled to write the check and mail it? Well, I'll tell you this, I've known people who have received checks like that from people they never knew. And that check, they will tell you, came at a moment they needed it. It happened to be for the very exact amount that they were lacking. And in that moment, they went around telling everyone they knew how the Lord had answered their prayer and provided for them in a a miraculous way. I've heard real stories, real life stories of people who tell me this. And that person's heart was lifted up, their faith was encouraged, their needs were met, and all because someone else acted in blind faith. Or have you ever felt prompted to walk up to a stranger and just tell them that God has asked you to pray for them? People you don't know in the grocery store or somewhere else you meet them? I've had people tell me that they were the one 
who someone walked up to with that offer to prayer, to, to pray, and they tell me that that simple moment, that little encounter, changed their life. I've heard stories of people who said they were feeling empty, they were feeling lost, they were feeling depressed, and then someone approached them out of the blue and said, I'm here to pray with you. And before they knew it, their head was bowed with this person, a prayer was coming out of that person, and suddenly they felt this incredible peace just washing over them. And then when it was over, they couldn't stop thinking about Jesus all of a sudden, and they went on a search, and ultimately it led to a profession of faith. I've heard stories like this because somebody acted in blind faith. And perhaps you're the person who one day felt the Lord prompt you to have a conversation with your neighbor or maybe to send a a note of encouragement to someone you hadn't heard of or thought about in a while or maybe to give a Bible to someone at work or maybe to start a Bible study in your home or maybe move to another country as a missionary or I don't know, plant a church. I mean, the list is endless, right? But every time God moves in your heart to prompt these steps of blind faith, he is asking you to trust him with that outcome, even though you don't know why or where it's going. It's a step that does not explain itself at the moment, but in time, it reveals itself to be the wisdom of God and the love of God. You know, my own personal ministry in my life and my wife's ministry and and our lives together is nothing if not a testimony to countless steps of blind faith that God has used for his glory. And, and I don't compliment myself in that. I'm saying we didn't know what we were doing. Most of what we do in ministry, most of what anybody does in ministry is an act of faith. You don't really know what you're doing it for. You have a reason, you have a scheme, you have a plan, but half the time the plan changes before it even gets going. It's more about the movement than it is about the direction. It's more about the uh, willingness to go than it is about the plan to get there. And sometimes I wonder how many more of those moments I might have actually missed in the past because I didn't take a step of blind faith when I could. You know, I want to be more like the man that I read about here. This guy that set a Passover table for no one in particular, and because he took that simple step, he hosted the Messiah in his home. I want to be more like him. And not because I want to show off, you know, exemplary obedience or mature faith. I just long to see Jesus walk through my door and eat dinner at my table if that were something God was willing to do. I'm jealous for the moments when God works miracles through even the smallest acts of sacrifice that I can make. I want to experience that joy of seeing him bless others because I simply did what he asked me to do. And I hope that's a jealousy you share I hope you want that moment too. I I hope all our hearts are prepared and ready to say yes to the Spirit's leading when it comes because it's coming all the time, probably more than you realize. We should look forward to the moment the Lord says, go there, give that to that person, speak to that person, pray with that person. We should be thinking about that moment so that when it comes, we're ready to act on that moment. And when you do that, let me assure you, you become part of something much bigger than just yourself. You become part of a linkage of things God is doing that ultimately lead to something glorious. That man, whoever he was in this moment, had no idea when he set that table what was gonna follow from it. And had that man decided not to obey in that moment for whatever reason, I assure you, the Lord would have found another place that night. The Passover meal would have still taken place. We still would have had the Last Supper. And this man's life would have gone on uninterrupted, unaware of what he missed that night. I assure you, he just would have proceeded on. But because he did obey in a very simple way, he became a part of one of the most important moments in the history of all creation. 
And perhaps most of all, what I love about this guy is you don't know his name. You serve a God who can do great things through the blind faith of strangers, people we may never know this side of heaven, and that is the person we should all strive to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, give us all hearts of blind faith. Faith truly, a heart that wants to serve and obey, Father, but blindly in the sense that we are not demanding that we know your plan. We're not asking for you to explain yourself. We are not hesitant. We do not stand back in judgment. We are leaning forward in a hope to serve in whatever way you call us, Father, ready to act as you lead us, knowing how much you can do with a small act of obedience. Father, I pray for this church as we prepare to regather in a few weeks that you would begin stirring hearts with blind faith, with courage and a desire to serve you so that we would not be held back by fear. We would not be held back by um, bad habits of staying home and, and just becoming complacent with going nowhere, but rather, Father, we would we would stand up, we would move, and we would go as you call us so that we can serve better, so that you'd be glorified, so that your mission would be met, so that we might be a small part of something much bigger than ourselves. Father, give us that opportunity. Each day we remain as we wait for your return. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.